0: And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the very word of God. Amen.
1: We are in a series that we do every year called Crosstown Basics, in which we discuss what we consider to be the three essential components for making disciples of Jesus. Gospel, community, and mission. We believe that disciples of Jesus are made by the gospel, in gospel community, and on gospel mission. Last week we discussed the gospel and said that the gospel is the story of how the Creator God has come to rescue his world through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, He accomplished this rescue mission, and he has ascended to the throne and now reigns as the undisputed Lord of the world. This week, we turn our attention to gospel community. We are talking this morning about the renewed people of God who are united by faith in Jesus and marked As His disciples. We are talking this morning, in other words, about the church, what Galatians 6 verse 16 calls the Israel of God. Now these days the church is well known, but not always well respected. And many people who call themselves Christians, who claim to be disciples of Jesus seem to not care too much about the church. On the one hand, some of this is understandable, given the pain that many have experienced within the church. At the same time, some of the problems that we have with the church, I suspect, are due to ignorance about what the church is and why it is indispensable to the Christian faith and to Christian disciples. I want to argue today from the passage before us that we can no more forsake the gospel community, the church, than we can the gospel itself and still be faithful to the mission of disciple-making. We can no more forsake the church of Jesus Christ than we can the gospel itself And still remain faithful to the mission that our Lord has commanded us to fulfill. I want to argue this morning that the church, by its very presence, its distinctive practices, and its unique power, is a sign that the gospel is true, that Jesus is Lord. The church, by its very presence, Distinctive practices and unique power tells the world to this day that Jesus is the true Lord of all. So getting ready for three Ps next week, we got three Ps this morning. The presence of the church, the practices of the church, and the power of the church. First, the presence of the church, its very existence, is a sign I'm saying this morning that the church, the fact that it exists, this church and all churches that proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord, by our very existence right here in Oklahoma City in 2023, right here, the fact that we exist as a church is a sign to the world that Jesus is Lord. You see, the church by its very existence demonstrates that the kingdom of God has arrived. That Jesus really does reign over all creation as its undisputed Lord. Or to say it another way, if the church did not exist, we would not be able to prove that Jesus is Lord. We wouldn't be able to look anywhere and say, there's evidence. There's the proof. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is set aside, for many of you, this will be necessary. Set aside for a moment what you might think of the church today. And let's go back to when the church was born. It's just a couple chapters before the one that we read this morning. So flip back to the second chapter, which we looked at a bit last week as well. The first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 gives us the story of when the church came into existence. The disciples of Jesus at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are told in chapter 1, verse 15, totaled, totaled about 120. That's roughly the number of people that are gathered at Crosstown Church today. So, not a large congregation by any means. This group, in fact, was on the verge of extinction about to be snuffed out by the reality of all the other failed messianic movements in that day. You got a crucified Messiah who's dead. It's not long before this messianic movement is not gonna be around anymore. And yet by the end of chapter two, the Bible says that the group has swelled to from 120 to about 3,000. Pretty explosive growth here when the church was born. You see, what we are reading here in Acts chapter 2 is an account of how the early Christian movement went from a small band of Jesus followers on the verge of extinction to a much more public and notable force. Let me just pause here to remind you that the Jesus idea was not the only messianic claim in the first century. There were plenty of would-be messiahs, all throughout Israel's turbulent history during these days. And you haven't heard about hardly any of them. You probably don't know any of them. And that's because when their leader died, the movement died out with them. What explains the fact that Christianity went from 120 disciples hiding in an upper room for fear to the reality of the Christian church to this day? Well, we're being told about it. Something has to explain the phenomenon. There has to be a reason why this messianic movement survived and thrived when so many others did not. Or again, to say it the other way around, it would be impossible to claim that the kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus if the church did not exist. If Jesus achieved what he claimed he came to do, establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, then there should be some evidence. The king should have his citizens. And the church of Jesus is the evidence that he does. Now, Luke's telling of the church's birthday indicates that he wants us to draw meaning from the timing of when it all happened. It happened here in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus' death at the time of Passover clearly has significance, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the fact that Jesus was crucified on or around the day of the Jewish Passover carries great significance for what it all means. In the same way, the birth of the church on Pentecost has great significance for what the church means. Christianity, may I remind you, is rooted in ancient Israel and the great Jewish story. So we should probably familiarize ourselves with that story. Pentecost is the annual Jewish celebration that comes seven weeks after Passover. It was a harvest festival. The first fruits of the yearly harvest were brought to Jerusalem for a one-day blowout celebration can read about it in Leviticus 23, 15 to 21. Yes, they had a potluck. Jews from all over would come to Jerusalem on this day. And as Jews of the diaspora, they did not all speak the same language, but they had the same faith. And on this Pentecost celebration, something remarkable happened. Something that was unexpected. Something that had never happened before. Let's read about it right here in Acts 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A little later down in verse 12 when Peter is asked, what does this all mean? Peter declared in verses 16 to 17 that what this all means is the arrival of the long-awaited last days that the Old Testament prophets had been telling us would come. The last days is one of those expressions that has unfortunately taken on meanings quite foreign to Jewish expectation and hope. The last days are not from the perspective of first century Judaism, the time when God would bring an end to the space-time universe. The last days are the time when God renews his covenant with Israel, putting Israel once again at the center of that very space-time universe and for the sake of it. The last days according to Jewish expectation and hope, is when God returns to his temple. When God comes home to live in the place that he said in the Psalms would be his home forever. The last days is when God returns to his people to live and dwell among them, never to leave again. The last days are the transition from the old creation to the new, to the long-awaited promise of a new world. And the the festival of Pentecost pointed forward to the arrival of that day. Pentecost was a commemoration of the giving of the Torah to Moses at Sinai. A month or two after Passover and, ex- and the exodus from Egypt. In fact, here's where Luke seems to want to stress the timing. Because in Luke's gospel, in Luke 9 verse 31, he uses the word exodus to describe what Jesus accomplished on Passover in his death and at his resurrection. Luke says, it's an exodus. It's a new Passover. The last days have arrived. And so, Some one, two months later, just as Moses then climbed the mountain, Mount Sinai, and received the law, so here at Pentecost, a new and decisive moment of of liberation has come to the people of God. Fifty days later, just as we might expect, if we're familiar with the story, comes the time for covenant renewal for God's newly liberated people, so... What might we be told here? What might we be learning from what Luke is telling us about the timing of the church being born on Pentecost? Well, two things at least. When Moses received the Torah, there were two main things that we should note about its content. This is all that material, you know, in Exodus 20 that you sort of just stop kind of paying attention to as it goes along. The Torah, of course, contained what we call the law, instructions for how God's people were to live. The Torah was not law in order to become the people of God. I mean, they came out from Egypt. We are the people of God, free, restored, liberated. The Torah is instructions on now what? How are we to live as the people of God in God's presence? And that's the second thing. Because the Torah also came with blueprints. Blueprints for a tabernacle, which would be the very place where God's presence would abide with his people. So, Luke seems to be signaling to us right here that the arrival, of the birth of the church at Pentecost tells us that the filling with the Holy Spirit of all of his disciples, of all the disciples of Jesus is how the church was born. And so we should see now why it is indispensable to Christian discipleship. Why it is absolutely essential that all who belong to the people of God are joined to his church because the church is both a people and a place. The church is where God's people, redeemed, restored by the once-for-all decisive act of Jesus at that new Passover, learn to be God's people. We learn to live now in the realities of his kingdom, and the church is a place. It's the place where God himself dwells in our midst, tabernacled among them by his own Holy Spirit. In fact, it is this God with us that makes the church the church and proves that Jesus is Lord. So, we've seen now first that the church, simply by its presence, gives witness to the gospel reality that Jesus is Lord. But now notice that the church, by its practices, also testifies to this gospel reality. When we come to the end of Acts chapter 2 and our scripture reading this morning at the end of Acts chapter 4, we see some of the central habits and practices that shape and form disciples of Jesus within this new covenant community. I realize this morning that you're so familiar with these practices, church people, because that's why you're here. You're so familiar with this that we can sometimes forget the significance to these practices. And how they are meant to all proclaim the gospel, the reality that Jesus is Lord. So let me just show you here first that the key to all of these church practices is that they are entirely communal. Disciples of Jesus cannot be made in isolation. Christianity is a public faith. It is not a private religion. I wish I had somebody to help me this morning. That was a time for an amen right there. Christianity is a public faith. This is not something that you can simply swallow the secular Kool-Aid and say, I'll just keep it to myself. Then you have no Christianity. Those who want to talk primarily about me and my relationship with God might have a religion. But that religion is not Christianity. Because Christianity is communal. To be a Christian means you belong to a community. It means you belong to a people who've been liberated You've come out of Egypt along with the rest of God's people coming out of Egypt. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Do you see what, what the Bible's trying to get at? You are not your own. Others have a claim on you as you do on them. Now notice here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, at the end of Peter's gospel sermon in which he proclaimed how it is that Jesus is now Lord he said, we, we read this, so those who received his word, those who are redeemed, those who come out of Egypt, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here's the first one, baptism. It's the sign of our common faith, and it is required Required of all Christian disciples. It's not optional, it's required. There is simply no biblical warrant for a so called unbaptized Christian. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Then you must be baptized. Baptism is the practice that marks the entry point into the new covenant family. No one gets to opt out of it because there is only one Lord and only one faith, Ephesians 4 tells us. There's also only one baptism. Baptism, yes, is a sign of conversion of one's profession of faith, to be sure. But listen, it is every bit as much a sign that you now belong that you are part of a community that you are invited in the idea throughout the scriptures is that all who are baptized properly belong to the family of God that's the ideal that the scriptures set out for us now The reason we have so much difficulty about this today is because we're some 2,000 years and multiple generations and much removed from the first century world that new kinds of um, problems begin to emerge in our understanding of the story. We have today a problem on two different fronts. We have among us, not like here maybe but we have in the world we inhabit today we have baptized people who want nothing to do with the church and we have churches that readily admit into their membership unbaptized people i hear these stories all the time and i just imagine in the early christian movement it would have been scratching their heads what? You, you, you're, you're, you're part of the family of God, but you don't join to the family? Or you're joined to the family, but you're not marked as one of his people through baptism? We have so much here to clarify about the significance of baptism. And by the way, it is the church's job to make it plain. I have this kind of conversation Multiple times a year with all kinds of different people. I had a person one time who has never even been to our church, but who knows I'm a pastor, simply asked if I would baptize him. Just kind of on his own. And when I explained that, well, happy to baptize you, but to be baptized means you're brought into the people of God. It means you join in the, to, to the church community. Oh, well, Never mind. Off he went. We have gotten ourselves off track. We've been preaching a wrong message about what baptism means and its connection to the church. And it's because of the confusion that exists in our day that we have to be local practitioners. It's one of the reasons why our church does not practice spontaneous baptisms. You know how that is. You show up to church, had no idea, and by the end of the service, you're getting baptized. We don't do that here. There might be good reasons why other churches do it. I understand. You read in the book of Acts, there are people who confess faith, get baptized. We, we can have that argument. That's fine. But you've got to be a local practitioner of the morbidities that come into the faith when it comes to this issue of baptism. We think that spontaneous baptisms have the effect of separating baptism from inclusion into the church, and we don't think that's helpful. The point here is that baptism tells the story of all who are in the family, and the fact that we are all in the family. Why? Because of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. So this doesn't contradict what I said two weeks ago, that it's faith and faith alone. Not at all. It supports what we said two weeks ago, that it's only by faith in Christ, because that is what the waters of baptism represent. That's the reason we belong. That's why we have a common faith, that Jesus is Lord, because we're baptized in his name. In verse 42, here and I'm still in Acts 2. We're getting to Acts 4, hang on. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we are told that these Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here's the next practice. Christianity is not an evolving faith. I'm gonna say that again. Christianity is not an evolving faith. We do not invent new teachings. We earnestly seek And, in the words of Jude, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's the reason why we say the Apostles' Creed each Sunday. We are anchored to the historical realities of the triune God who made the world. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Of the triune God who came to redeem his world. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And of the triune God who is now filling his world with his power and presence. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Do you see it? This is what God's up to. This is what we contend for. It's not a new teaching. It's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So we are always trying to go back to the apostolic teachings so that we might learn the faith together. And because Christianity makes a claim about all creation, we need local apostolic teaching in order to learn together how to live as disciples of Jesus in our day with the challenges that we have to face. They're not the same challenges that previous generations faced. They're not. But we need to learn together how to face those challenges in our day. We must learn, therefore, not just the bare facts of the faith, but also its worldview, its way of being in the world. Verse 42 also says that these disciples of Jesus were devoted to the fellowship. And again, I stress, Christianity is inherently communal. Here's the communal realities of Christianity. We share a common faith in the waters of baptism. We share a common doctrine or teaching as we press into the apostolic faith once and for all delivered and try to apply that in our own time and generation but we also share a common table a common table fellowship at the very least fellowship means one's real physical presence in which probably here in Acts 242 the last two things are meant to further define what one does in this fellowship. There's the breaking of bread, which everybody likes, potlucks. (laughs) It refers to sharing ordinary meals, but it also includes the observance of the special meal, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. It's a fellowship meal. No solo Christianity here. We don't think that you should take the Lord's Supper at home by yourself. You do it with the people of God, gathered together. Again, no solo Christianity here. Have you ever noticed when you go to a restaurant, there are always at least two chairs at every table? Nobody sits alone. At least, it's awkward if you do, right? I remember those days. You're not supposed to eat alone. So, What is the church's practice? What if, what if, church, what if at least on the Lord's day, you made sure no one ever ate alone? What if you invited someone out to eat with you? Or even better, have them over to share a meal at your home. This is what the church devoted themselves to because they were being made as disciples of Jesus. So it matters that we show up. Just trying to avoid soapboxes a little bit, but I'll just get on one for a minute. You should show up on time. Because your presence matters. We need you. You're part of the family. It's not the same if you're not here. All right, Susan, I'm going to do it. Words. So this morning, Susan showed me this. This is... Uh, For some reason, some printer thing went crazy. This is everybody who checked in their kids after 10.30 last week. (laughs) Not shaming you. You're actually not alone. (laughs) Now look, we can see how far we've fallen from apostolic Christianity when professing Christians think of church the way they think of their neighborhood association or their local gym. I belong. I might even pay my dues. But no one needs to actually show up. If an unbaptized Christian makes no sense, neither does an unchurched Christian. These make about as much sense As an unpublished author. And by the way, since you can't fellowship alone, you aren't meant to pray alone either. Now, it's fine to pray alone. I find it so much easier to pray with someone else. Prayer ought to mark Christian fellowship, both when we gather for worship in the church or in our homes. And then notice in verse 44. That Christians also share a common concern for one another. They had all things in common. And it even says here's what they did. They went about selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this, this reminds us of what we read this morning in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. We are told there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because they were all rich. No. It says it's because of this radical generosity, sharing. They were committed to each other. And this was unbelievably radical in the first century. Because what these early Christians were doing was they were living like a family. They were living like a single family because that's how they thought of themselves. This wasn't a club that you join. It's not a membership that you have. It's the family to which you belong. And I pause here just for a moment to ask you, brothers and sisters, how might we need to improve here? Yeah, I'm, I'm asking rhetorically. You could come tell me later. But we're inviting. Where do you see opportunity for us as a church to grow into this kind of community together? What will it take? But then ask yourself the question, what do you need to contribute How ought you to be a faithful member of the family? If we are thinking like Christians, this should not feel like shame. If we're thinking like Christians, you should not feel like, fine. If we're thinking like Christians, this should be exciting. So maybe we should print the Bumper stickers, the window decals, I love my church, Crosstown OKC. You know, maybe we should. I don't know. We should feel a joy that this is our family. This is our church. This is where we belong. Something, by the way, is really off. And it could be my preaching. That's fine. Wouldn't be the first, but something's really off if you hear all this and you feel like the doctor has just told you you can no longer eat your favorite food. Something's really off if that's how you feel. The church is not something that you're supposed to dread like going to the dentist. I talked to somebody the other day. They said they love going to the dentist. I said, where are you from? What is wrong with you? But you see, the church is exciting because it's been given the unique power. A unique power. Nothing else like it. Nothing. Nothing like the church that demonstrates to the, re- to the world the reality that Jesus is Lord. You say, what's the evidence been that Jesus is Lord? I say, there's one, there's one most impactful, undeniable reality. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And it is our great privilege to be a part of it. Just take a look, take in these words together. First, listen to Acts 2 46 to 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. What's the impression you get from those words? Notice it says, glad and generous, not sad and obligated. And by the way, the word favor here is the word for grace. It describes the experience that one has in relationship with another. Why do so many professing Christians think of the church as something that makes demands on them rather than something that gives them the opportunity for joy and the experience of grace? Perhaps the fault lies with the church. But isn't it just as likely that the fault lies with our unbiblical expectations about what the church is and why it exists? You see, in Acts chapter 4, in our scripture reading this morning, the Christian community is described as being of one heart and soul. Now, here's the thing. Christians do not all think the same about everything. But that's the beauty of true Christian community. Jesus brings together all kinds of people with all kinds of different perspectives. And he puts them in a family and then says, figure out how to get along. (laughs) We read about this two weeks ago. In the first century world, that was the reality of Jews and Gentiles learning how to exist as Jews and Gentiles. You don't have to become the same. And yet this is a new community that Jesus has created. We don't find ourselves gathered around people who should agree with us on everything, who should look at everything with exactly the same opinions and and perspectives. Oh, quite, quite the contrary. This is the fact, this is the reality that proves Jesus is Lord. In the church, there is a unity, a unity to enjoy Uh, something that brings us together in ways that the outside world can only dream about. That's why we're told, by the way, in verse 33, that the apostles with great power were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here it is again. And great grace, great favor was upon them all. You see, here's the secret to the church's power. It's not the fact that that we all see the same thing and have everything in common because we all are cut from the same cloth. It's the fact that we are all redeemed by the same Lord. The secret to the church's power is the gospel of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the fruit that comes from this power is what we've told, been now told here twice great grace or great favor. Goodwill, help, healing, and hope. Now, who wouldn't want that? I'll tell you who. Satan. The devil. Our adversary. You see, if you think of the church as some kind of utopia where there are no problems to face, no dangers to avoid, just hang around for a little bit or just keep reading your Bible. In Acts chapter 5, we read about this disturbing account of Ananias and Sapphira. Certainly wakes us up a bit, doesn't it? What's going on here? It's not an account of church members who don't tithe. It's an account of the devil who will not subside. Verse 3 clearly points to the dark power of evil intending to wreak havoc on God's people. The fact that the devil does not leave the church alone is not a sign of the church's impotence. It's a sign of its power. Did you hear me? The fact that the devil will not leave the church alone does not prove the church is weak and powerless. It proves that the church is powerful and the devil knows it. See, the devil doesn't care about that which doesn't threaten him. This account points again to the reality of the kingdom of God now come. The future judgment, just like the future hope and vindication, comes rushing into the present. And precisely because the church is God's new temple, right, the place where God dwells, his presence, the Holy Spirit, indwelling every one of God's people, because the church is God's new temple, it's also a dangerous place. We see hints of this in a few other places in the Bible And especially in the New Testament, one is found in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul warns against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and thereby bringing judgment on himself. And in verse 30, he says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So I guess we'd better take the church seriously. The devil certainly does. So how should we do that? Notice that at the heart of the satanic attack is a lie. Why, verse 3 says, has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The one thing we in the church must do is be people of truth. We must always tell the truth. The Washington Post wants to warn us that democracy dies in the darkness. Fair enough. But something far more important than democracy is at risk in shadowy places. That's why the church is called to shine the light of God's truth in every place. You are the light of the world, Jesus proclaimed over his new community. I'll leave it to Pastor Jod to speak next week to the light-bearing reality of the church to the outside world. Let me close this morning by speaking about it here, inside the church. We must not let Satan wreak havoc by living in the darkness of lies in our life together. You know where some of those dark places are in your own heart. So, find a Christian brother or sister whom you trust. And confess your sins one to another, as the Bible instructs us to do. Not everyone here needs to know everything but someone does so they can minister grace to you and you can find the help you need to walk in the light. Your pastors are committed to you and to your spiritual health and growth, partly because we found here, and we've kind of been here a long time, uh, that that's what we get, people who care who will care about our spiritual health and growth. We were out of town a few weeks ago, visited another church, not to throw shade at this church, but when we left, Mindy said, I miss our little church. It's just your family, right? It's where you belong. It's where you should be cared for. People are devoted to you. As your pastors, it is our business to know you so that we can serve you well. And since the Bible brought it up, I'll just bring it up. That includes how you're doing financially. Uh Uh-oh. And no, we do not know specifics about how much you're giving to the church, but we do ask our treasurer to let us know of any family, any member families who give nothing in a given quarter or whose giving has significantly dropped over the previous year. I hope you do not find that threatening. We're not doing this because we need your money. Praise God. The Lord has richly provided for us. The people of God here are faithful. This isn't something that we hardly ever have to do. But we do it, not because we need your money, but because we want to make disciples. Let us all then be committed to one another. Do you know the needs in your own missional family? Are you aware of how your brothers and sisters are doing? So this week, or whenever your missional family leaders have planned it, let's spend some time in our missional families as we're going through the primer, talking about our church covenant and the commitments that we have made to one another for our mutual joy and edification. We need you. You need us. We're part of the family. And as long as our Lord lets us do life together, let us eagerly seek to be of one heart and soul as we serve him and his kingdom day by day. And never forget our Lord's promise. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the great privilege it is to be called your family. How do we get here? Through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And through our union with Christ signified at your command in the waters of baptism and in fellowship with Christ and his people by your command in the Lord's Supper, we grow in community together as your disciples. I know that sometimes it's hard to see if it's working. I know at times, in fact, it might seem quite the opposite. But when trials and persecutions come, this is not a sign that the church has no power. It's the opposite. It's a sign that the church is infused with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ died to purchase his bride. We know, O oh Lord, you are very jealous for us. jealousy of holy love. And so, may we reflect that same attitude of love and grace to one another. Whoever we are, rich or poor, male or female, whatever our place of origin, we belong to you by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, in the year ahead, would you make us even more credible gospel community for your, grace, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.